Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, it is no secret that you and I are both anxiously scanning the one ads as we try to figure out what's next when the podcast wraps up in a couple of weeks. Um, here's an option. Uh, instead of talking about boxing, we could take up boxing. I know. I know what you're thinking. We're old. We're washed. Mm -hmm. But that didn't stop 58-year-old Scott England from making his pro debut in Nashville, Tennessee last week. Now, granted, it didn't go well for him. He was knocked out inside a round by an opponent who entered the ring 0-6. But, hey, look, it's good to know there are options. <laughs> I did see that story, and um, he's a media guy. Did you know that? Um, I didn't know that, no. Yeah, apparently Scott England is or was a news anchor. So uh, is the media business in that bad a shape that we all <laughs> need to be thinking about fighting to pay for our next meal? <sighs> I don't know. I'm, I'm a decade younger than this guy, exactly. Uh, haven't quite had my midlife crisis yet, but when I do... I hope it manifests in some way that doesn't put me in physical peril, um, but also in some way that doesn't cost a lot of money, like a sports car or, or doing something that causes me to get a divorce. Um, also, probably want to avoid something that causes extreme embarrassment. So like no wanting to go on a reality TV show or something like that. Oh, and, and definitely nothing that will leave a regrettable lasting mark, like getting a big full back tattoo. Um, I guess the more I talk this through, there's no good option for a midlife crisis. Um, yeah, uh, maybe getting hit in the head for a few seconds and taking the 10 count isn't so bad after all. And, and on top of all that, Scott England doesn't have to spend the rest of his life wondering if he could have been a decent boxer. You, you can't put a price on that sort of peace of mind. Yeah, so yeah, I feel like I've been through several midlife crises already. Hmm. Like life is one big ongoing midlife crisis for me <laughs> these days. How old? How old were you when your first midlife crisis began? Three, twenty-two. Okay, all right. No, you know what? Actually, it was funny enough. It was twenty-nine because I was like this really um, supposedly this this like boy. I don't want to say boy genius kind of thing, but I did a whole lot of things very young. I started my own NGO okay. when I was 18. I right. joined Greenpeace when I was 19. I was leading Antarctic expeditions when I was 21. And then by 29, it suddenly occurred to me that 30 was around the corner and I probably achieved. I, I probably, mm. you know, been as precocious as I was going to be. And that was probably right. it. I'd front loaded all the excitement in my life. And I was right. <laughs> Until it came to podcast with you, Eric. Thank you. I was hoping you would say that, uh, Dookie Mulvaney, MD. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to, uh, I'm glad to hear that uh, you do, you do view me as a second peak working with me on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. So, so there you go. But the good thing about having midlife crises in my situation is. There's literally no danger of going out and getting a sports car. It's not an option. I can't. <laughs> right. I could barely afford to buy my 11-year-old replacement Jeep the other month. Right. So you could steal so, yeah. a sports car. I, well, I could. That doesn't. That sounds like a lot of work. I'd rather have a nap. <laughs> so the, ultimately, I think where we're landing on is both of us just don't have the energy or motivation to go through a midlife crisis at this point. Yeah, or at least not to do anything with it. Right, to act on cat. it. Right. <laughs> there you go. That seems like, you know, that's, you know. That, I support that. that. Like yeah. My, yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, coming up on this podcast, I will hit Eric with our final top five challenge. How about that? Uh, I will also test you with the fight game. We'll look back on Saturday's action, and we will ask if we saw the fighter of the year and the fight of the year in separate mm. about. On Saturday, we'll look ahead to the returns of Jake Paul and Bam Rodriguez. Most importantly, we will look ahead to the final Showtime card of all time. And the Hall of Fame class of 2024 has been announced. So we'll discuss who got in and who didn't. But first, hopefully you all heard our interview with Stephen Espinosa on Friday, in which we discussed Showtime boxing, but also the new deal between PBC and Prime Video. Eric, we've had a few days to digest that news. Have you had any other thoughts or impressions since then? Yeah. First off, thanks again to Stephen for that fantastic interview and to Chris de Blasio for hooking it up and to all the listeners who gave us feedback and said how much they liked it. Yeah. Really fortuitous timing for us to have the news announced and get the interview later that day. As far as PBC and Prime, the information is still somewhat vague. There's a lot we don't yeah. know. The word is about 12 to 14 cards a year on Prime, some pay-per-view, some not. It's a multi-year deal, but 
that could mean two, three, five. Uh, if they hire us to podcast, then you can be assured it will last exactly five <laughs> years and then come, come to a sudden end. Um, it is assumed throughout the industry that Al Heyman is not done making deals with networks, that there will be a, a second option to cover smaller shows, perhaps a show box like series, most likely a linear network. But again, all very TBD or, or at least TBA. Maybe it's already been deed, but not aid. Right. Um, <laughs> right. But, uh, but <laughs> in theory, on paper, I agree with everything Stephen said. Uh, Prime should be a great fit for boxing. It can reach a huge audience, uh, according to uh, the interwebs, which are never wrong. Uh, the Paramount Plus Showtime combo was reaching about 60 million subscribers and about 200 million have Amazon Prime. So mm. I'm sure a lot of boxing fans already have it and, and won't have to add another service. And if you are adding it, well, you know, you'll, you'll get the free shipping now. Um, if people are anti-Amazon as a big corporate monster, fine, but you'd better be anti-Saudi Arabia fights first and anti-Fox Network fights first right. before you get around to hating on Amazon fights. Uh, but overall, this should be great news for fight fans, depending on how much of the deal turns out to be pay-per-views. And great news for the PBC fighters. They need an outlet. They need to keep busy. And great news for a lot of our friends at Showtime. As Steven said, if he has any say in it, ultimately, a lot of those fantastic people who work for Showtime will have the opportunity to slide over. Um, of most relevance to us is the little bit in the press release about shoulder programming, uh, like yeah. docu-series and weigh-in streams. No mention in the release of podcasts specifically, but... There's reason for hope. Uh, what Stephen said at the end of the interview provides reason for optimism. I, I have a few quick things to say about about that, about us. But maybe before I do, I should let you interrupt me for the less navel gazing side of things to, to, to give your thoughts on, on the PBC Prime News. Well, we're closing this podcast the way we began our podcast career uh, with you stealing my notes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, that's that's the one thing that's never going to change. No matter where we are, Kieran, no matter where we go, we, we will have the same thoughts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and the thing that that I mostly noted was was to say you know, what you talked about that this is not the end of the story. I feel fairly certain about that. We don't know anything definitively. We've heard things. Um, but yeah, this, like you have heard that this is like 12 to 14, uh, events a year. That's not going to be the sum total of what PBC fighters are getting in 2024 right. and beyond. So there's still something else around the corner. Um, and, and like you said, look, Stephen mentioned the importance of linear still in the industry mm. and in the very, when this was, was first announced that, that, that BBC and Showtime were oh the, the show paramount was ending showtime boxing i did talk to a couple of people at pbc and they were definitely said yeah we would like to get a linear deal so you and i have heard rumors about where that might be right. but yeah don't i i think we don't know by any means we're not giving you in like the, the inside scoop here but don't assume i think that all your PBC type boxing is going to be on Amazon Prime. I think I think this is the beginning of something, and there are a lot of plates still spinning. Mm -hmm. um, we do know enough from attempting to talk to some of the various people that we think are involved that there's a lot still going on. Um, and yeah, look, I'm I'm very intrigued to see how this how this works. Like on the one hand, you know, moving from a premium cable network that does all kinds of things to a very broad based streaming platform that does all kinds of things would seem to be against the trend of where the sports appear to be going, you know, and we're seeing most fights on platforms like The Zone and ESPN and Sky Sports, sports channels specifically and platforms. Right. But but yeah, look, Prime Video has already got uh, Thursday Night NFL. It has some mm -hmm. Premier League games in the UK, at least for the next season or so. Um, and as you mentioned, there are a lot of consumers are very, very used to having, first of all, Amazon Prime and now having Prime Video and finding TV shows and movies there. So and it's not something you have to sort of struggle to explain to people. Like if you say to people, oh, yeah, I'm I'm covering a fight that's on the zone. Most people are going to go, what? Right, right. And then you'll show it to them. And they'll go, D-A-Z-N, what the hell? Right. Everybody knows what Prime Video is, yeah. even if they don't have it. Um, you know, that that's easy. So um, I'm, I think that the first couple of events will do extremely well, not least for the novelty value, right? People will want to see what the production looks like. 
mm-hmm. although I suspect, like you, that it will look an awful lot like Showtime, right. um, who the announcers are and, and, and all of that. And like you, um, another note that you stole from me, um, I am, although predictably so, very interested to see what happens in terms of shoulder programming, uh, whether we're talking more all-access type shows, um, whether there'll right. be something new or different. I'm curious to see what the Amazon folks have to, you know, what kind of input they have. Um, this isn't the end of the story from what we hear, uh, but this is the probably the biggest, most important. This is like the tent pole piece, I think, and, and, and other things will continue to fall into place. Yeah. Um, and so, OK, so so uh, so just just to briefly do a, a little navel gazing uh, and uh, speculating on ourselves and sharing what little we know. Um, a lot of people responded on Twitter or even one person on LinkedIn. I got a response uh, oh. saying, basically, give me prime boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. <laughs> um, that's the hope. But there are no guarantees. A lot of powerful people have to figure out a lot of more pressing details first. And um the PBC Prime deal apparently doesn't begin until March. So there at least figures to be a limbo period for us. Um, so we intend to share some information next week about that possible limbo period. But for now, um, you know, I don't want to speak for you, Karen, but I'm feeling encouraged in general by everything that's happened the last few days. Um, and I imagine a lot of our friends in other departments at Showtime are also feeling encouraged by the Prime news and by what Stephen had to say in the interview. Um, but um yeah, still, what we don't know right now far outweighs what we do know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I'd like to say it's as it's as fun and exciting for us to be waiting and finding out the news as it is for you. But that would be a lie. <laughs> if people understood the behind the scenes exchange of stressful messages, <laughs> stressed out messages, frankly, uh, that that we've that, that have gone back and forth between us really over the last couple of months, but especially yeah. uh, the last couple of days before this announcement. And, and they'll, they'll continue. The stress is far from lifted. <laughs> Indeed, so exactly. Okay, I might have to get two cats. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we're not done and dusted with Showtime yet. It is time yeah. for our final Showtime card preview. Um, next Saturday at the Armory in Minneapolis, Showtime says farewell to broadcasting boxing with a quadruple header headlined by David Morrell against Senna Agbeko. Uh, the card, which starts at 9 p.m. Eastern, also features Chris Colbert in a lightweight rematch with Jose Valenzuela, and Julio Cesar Martinez defending a flyweight belt against Angelino Cordova. Uh, the card opens with a contest that was announced this past week and is, frankly, an odd one. Robert Guerrero, 37-6-1, who last fought two years ago, and who won his first title at featherweight, features in a welterweight rematch with Andre Berto, 32-5, and five, who hasn't fought in five years, and whom Guerrero defeated via decision in 2012. I must confess, I don't understand this fight. I don't know where it's come from or why it's happening. Eric, your thoughts and your pick. Yeah, this really came out of the blue completely, except I heard Berto on our friend Tris Dixon's podcast a month or two ago, and he talked about fighting again and expecting to have an announcement soon. So... Mm. I guess I was like 1% not caught off guard when this fight got announced, but the other 99% of me was in WTF mode for sure. Um, I guess I'll say what I often say in situations like this. At least the 40-year-old is fighting the other 40-year-old and not fighting, you know, the 23-year-old. It's in theory a fair fight, at least. And if I'm trying to make a case in favor, I guess it fits in with the nostalgia of the evening, yeah. with, with the various lookbacks we can expect on the broadcast to the previous 37 years of Showtime Boxing. Berto Guerrero is a throwback to the memories in a way, maybe. Um, I'm, I'm reaching. I, I don't quite get this. It's very weird in general to add a fourth fight a week before the telecast, and particularly weird to add this one. Um, and you know, can you imagine if our year-long picks competition ends up decided by Guerrero Berto too? Um, <laughs> I sort of hope we have the same pick here so that that can't be the case. Um, I look at the fact that Guerrero won decisively the first time, that he's been somewhat active or at least less inactive than Berto, that he has won his last four fights from 2018 to 2021. I got to pick Guerrero. Uh, but he was never a big puncher at welterweight, so... I'll just say Guerrero by unanimous decision. I hope it's competitive and well-paced. I hope nobody gets seriously hurt. And why don't you go ahead and make a pick quickly so we can be done talking about this? You will be pleased to know that we have the same 
pick. Um, so, phew. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, look, I, I don't think there's been a great deal of clamor from fans to see either man back in the ring. I, I obviously, even though we saw Guerrero just a couple of years ago, I assumed they were both retired. I, I missed that um, uh, interview with uh, Tris Dixon that, that Berto mm-hmm. did. Guerrero looked decent by 38-year-old man standards when we last saw him against Victor Ortiz. We have nothing of late from Berto to go on. Right. So inevitably any kind of pick is going to be a bit of a shot in the dark here. I am, and I, and boy, you're just, I might as well have just given you the entirety of my notes here. I am <laughs> going to, <laughs> to leave. Well, I may as well just finally admit I've, I've hacked into your computer, Kieran. I've oh, been stealing your notes okay. all along. Ah, uh, okay. There you go. That's, that's probably why you haven't run away with the picks contest because you <laughs> right. see my notes and you second guess yourself. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm going to pick Guerrero simply because, like as you said, he has fought in the last five years. We do have something to go on. The only question for me was whether he would get a decision or a stoppage. And the fact that he was taking the distance by a faded version of the eminently stoppable Victor Ortiz last time out partly suggests to me that even if Berto has absolutely nothing, which is entirely possible, um, Guerrero may not have enough to get him out of there. Uh, I'm assuming... This is a ten rounder. It's listed as a ten rounder box. I believe so. It wasn't in the press release, was it? Okay. No, I made the same guess as you. Though it turns out to be eight or six or four. Um, that would be wonderful. (laughs) But, um, but either way, uh, yeah, I'm. I've already spent much more time in this fight than I expected to. I am going to pick Guerrero by unanimous decision. Okay. Good. Um, the uh, the second fight of the night sees Julio Cesar Martinez, who is twenty and one, fifteen KOs and two no contests. Defending an alphabet belt at flyweight against undefeated Angelino Cordova, who is 18-0-1 with 12 KOs. Kieran, what can you tell us about these two boxers, and what's your pick? Martinez is 28 years old. He's held this particular 112-pound belt since late 2019. Um, he stepped up a division uh, in that period to take on Chocolatito Gonzalez. He took a little bit of a thumping in losing a unanimous decision, but that is his only defeat. Uh, his two no contests came after hitting Charlie Edwards while Edwards was down, and when McWilliams Arroyo seemingly chose not to continue after being cut following a clash of heads, he's trained by Eddie Renoso, Canelo's trainer, um, and he's taken on some pretty decent opposition. As for Cordova, he doesn't have the same level of opposition as Martinez. Uh, he did score an upset decision win over Tito Acosta. He also has a decision win over two-time ch- title challenger Axel Vega. But unfortunately... They are two of only three men he has faced with winning records, and most of the opponents he's faced are down at 108 pounds. He has actually slight advantages in height and reach, but not in heft. And I suspect that Martinez will just prove too strong and too good for him here. And after some close early rounds, I think I see Martinez gradually turning the screw and stopping him late, quite late, in fact, as I'm going to pick Martinez by TKO in eleven. Okay. Uh, Martinez is an interesting fighter. He's he's flashy. He's athletic. He's obviously a world-class flyweight boxer, but I did think he was getting a little overhyped a couple of years back, and I wasn't surprised at all to see Chocolatito dish out a bit of a lesson. But that was up a weight class, and, and it was freaking Chocolatito. So, uh, you know, right. it's far from a reputation-killing loss. Yeah, Cordova, you, you touched on this. He really accepts his last fight against Acosta. He really has fought nobody. Um now, we'll be talking a little later in the pod about the Rafael espinoza robesi ramirez fight, and I would have said the same thing about Espinoza. He's fought nobody, mm-hmm. so how good could he be? Still, Cordova sure appears overmatched here to me, and he's the smaller guy, as you suggested, uh, having fought a lot of his career at 108. With the caveat that Martinez gets a little wild, makes mistakes, is the sort of fighter who could find a way to lose to a lesser opponent, I have to pick Martinez. And I have to pick him to win fairly easily. I expect it to be entertaining. Martinez is always fun, but I don't think it'll be terribly competitive. And I don't think it'll go nearly as long as you do. I think these are two completely different levels on display. I'm going to say Martinez KO in the fifth round. Okay. Um, The co-main sees the return of a former podcast guest, Chris Colbert, a former belt holder at 130 pounds, who faces Jose Valenzuela in a rematch the March contest that Colbert won by unanimous but very close and somewhat controversial decision. Colbert was dropped in the first round and hurt in the sixth, but emerged as the winner by 95-94 across the board, although Showtime's unofficial scorer, Steve Farhood, 
had it 96-93 for Valenzuela. Eric, what happened in that first fight? And despite getting the win, is the pressure a little bit more on Colbert heading into the rematch? And what'd you pick? What happened in the first fight is that Valenzuela deserved to have his hand raised. Steve Farhood got it right, and the judges got it wrong. Uh, that fight was on the Benavidez Plant pay-per-view undercard, fans will recall, and Colbert was coming off his first loss to Hector Luis Garcia. Really needed a win, and um, yeah, the judges gave him one. Um, but uh, as you said, Colbert got dropped 27 seconds into the bout. He was actually hurt twice that round, hurt again in the sixth, and we know he likes to switch stances. All three times he was hurt, he was in the orthodox stance. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the rounds in which he wasn't hurt were close. The fight was even on two cards heading into the 10th round. Whoever won that round would win the fight. And those two judges both gave it to Colbert. Uh, so is there more pressure on him for the rematch, you asked? I don't know. There's a lot of pressure on both because officially Valenzuela is now coming off two straight losses. He's only 24. Colbert just 27. This is... I don't want, quite want to say make or break, but um, you know what's what's a level below that? Make or bend? Uh, this is make or bend <laughs> for both guys. Um, I guess there's more pressure on Colbert because he had such hype going a couple of years ago. Um, in terms of you know watching this fight play out, the stances are going to be really interesting to watch here. According to Steve Farhood's calculations, Colbert spent 68% of the first fight in the orthodox stance. I would tend to think that number will go down in the rematch since he stayed out of trouble better as a Southpaw. He keeps fighting against Southpaws and he keeps struggling with them. Maybe Barry Hunter can coach him up, but I just don't know if Colbert's confidence is going to be restored to where it once was, but you know, not getting hurt when he switches to the orthodox stance would be a start uh, for all things, including his confidence. He's still the more skillful boxer here. Valenzuela, the much bigger puncher, man, this is a tough call. I feel like, we see it so often in boxing that, that a guy gets a little unlucky and that was his window and it closes. You know, there, there's no justice in this sport. No, uh, no, the universe taking care of things. I'm going to say Colbert by close, deserved unanimous decision this time. Yeah, I also struggled with this and came through a whole bunch of different scenarios. Uh, the fact that he was caught and hurt when he was fighting Orthodox suggests that he'll have looked at the tape and talked to Barry Hunter and thought, yeah, let's not do that. Right. <laughs> um, and that he might well, you know, and often when you have a very skillful boxer against a harder puncher, like you said, the harder puncher might have his one opportunity, but given the chance to roll it back, the smarter boxer tends to have the advantage again. But I also can't help but look at the loss to that or the, the the, the win over Valenzuela, the the seeming loss to, right. again, you know, in in the sort of context of also his loss to Garcia in the in the fight before, and mm -hmm. he somewhat capitulated in that Garcia fight. You kind of wonder a little bit if Colbert's lack of power is kind of coming to haunt him a little bit here, yeah. because even though he's had relatively few fights, he's had just eighteen pro fights. He's completed one hundred and twenty-seven of a scheduled one hundred and forty-eight rounds. That's a lot of rounds that's a lot of work in such a short period of time add in the fact that he's primarily for a 130 pounds and although he says he likes fighting up lightweight because he doesn't have to cut weight so much he didn't have the power to stop foes at 130 is he even going to have enough to keep them off him at 135 he just about did it against valenzuela this time last time around but after thinking about it i decided to go in the opposite direction as you i have this odd feeling that colbert might have hit the, the 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 end of the rails here a little bit very suddenly i think he's he's going to be slick enough to make it close he's slick enough certainly to make it to the end i think valenzuela is just going to have enough big rounds to to to, to get the win but the scorecards are still going to be a bit hinky i think colbert's going to win big on one round and lose a little on two others valenzuela mm -hmm by split decision for me. Interesting. And, you know, that was the pick you kind of needed to make to have a chance to yes. win this competition. You, ne you needed exactly. to find a swing go somewhere. Home, go big or go home. That's yeah. what they say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this, says. So, yeah. So, someone has said it. You repeated it. It, it applies here. Because, um, <laughs> yeah, I, you're down by two coming into this. So you needed to find other, unless you, like, nail the exact round of uh, the pre the fight we just did before this. You need you need to flip to a different uh, a different winner yeah. on one of these, and so yeah, this is a 
this is like a 50-50 fight, so it makes all the sense for you to make this pick. Our picks competition is pretty much going to come down to who uh, who ends up getting the nod in Colbert Valenzuela, too. Um, that brings us to the main event. It features David Morrell, born in Cuba but making his home in Minneapolis, putting his undefeated mark of 9-0, and 8 KOs on the line against Senna Agbeko, who is 28-2 and with 22 stoppages in a super middleweight bout. Kieran, we've seen Morrell on Showtime three times before. What do you think of his progress and his potential? What do you feel about him being the final A-side fighter on Showtime? And what is your pick? If you want to be one of those people who that, that Stephen talked about in the interview that's jumping up and down on Showtime's grave, you could say, look, this shows that there's a lot of difference between the first A-side on Showtime and the last one. Uh, David Morrell is no Marvin Hagler. I don't know that he ever will be, but that's okay. That's an absurdly <laughs> high bar. Yeah. Um, what I like about this as a final main event is that Morrell is really the latest in a number of boxers who've really come to public attention on Showtime, as many did on HBO beforehand. And I think that this fight speaks to what both HBO and Showtime have been all about. Showcasing the biggest stars, yes, of course, but also building boxes into stars. And and there's something fitting to me that Morrell, who's probably the biggest and brightest and most promising of the most recent wave of boxers coming through on Showtime, is, is the one to close it out. And I like the fact that it's happening in the Armory, which is Morrell's home court. And the Showtime's really helped relaunch as a, as a big fight venue in the last year or two. I think Agbeko is in many ways the perfect level of opponent, too. I, he's good enough to pull off what would be considered the mild upset if he's on his game and Morel is off his. But he's also not super likely to. And either way, he's good enough to provide a genuine litmus test and benchmark, win or lose. Uh, look, Morel has his flaws, uh, for sure. I mean, he's only boxed 40 rounds, I think, as a professional, for heaven's sake. Um like a lot of young KO artists, he can sometimes be overly reliant on his knockout power. And as a consequence, he can get a little sloppy sometimes with his technique. But even when he's doing that, he isn't giving his opponents a chance to take advantage. Uh, in five defenses of the alphabet belt he won a couple of years back, he hasn't lost a single round on all three scorecards. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see a bit of sloppiness from him at times, if he seems a bit frustrating at times. But I also fully expect him to seize control of this contest early and to never let it go. Agbeka will do far better than Yamaguchi Falcao, Morel's last yeah. opponent who was blown out inside a round. I suspect he'll last longer than Alantes Fox and Calvin Henderson, who both fell in the fourth. But I don't think he'll make it to the final round, as Eidos Yabasinoli did before being stopped last year. I think Agbeka will get steadily beaten up. And the last couple rounds, very much beaten up before the corner or the referee steps in in round nine. Okay. Um, as I said, when this fight was announced, Agbeko is a good fighter, uh, a perfectly solid super middleweight, and it, I just felt it was unfortunate for him that he's up against David Morrell, one of a handful of 168-pounders that I think he has almost no shot at beating. Morrell may truly be special. We can't really say because he hasn't fought anyone of note, but against opponents he's supposed to dominate, he does, and spectacularly. Um Actually, I think history may look kindly on him being the final main event A-side yeah. fighter on Showtime. Certainly, you know, it's a stretch to say he'll be a worthy bookend with Marvin freaking Hagler, but he may go on to great things just the same. And I imagine we'll be seeing him in some main events on Amazon Prime next year. Uh, there's no question in my mind I'm picking Morel here. The question for me was whether he would stop Agbeko uh, as he's stopped eight of his nine opponents so far. Agbeko is as solid and sturdy as any of the guys he's faced, but I find myself leaning toward yes. He does pound out a stoppage. Um, you're stealing my notes in this case because I specifically jotted down it ain't coming in round one like the Falcao win did. <laughs> um, I think he'll be made to work. Morel may even lose a round, something he generally does not do. But... Uh, I swear that I'm not just doing this to avoid any further potential for swing. <laughs> this is what I have jotted down. I'm sticking with it. I'm saying Morel eventually hurts Agbeko, drops Agbeko, and earns the stoppage. And uh, I've got round nine written down, and I am going to stick with that. And our whole picks competition will pretty much come down to who wins Colbert Valenzuela 2. Wow. So you like it to end, right? Just tense till the very end. That's much better than it coming down to Guerrero Birdo 2. Yes, much. Um, so that Showtime quadruple header is the biggest card next week, but it isn't the only one. On Friday the 15th in Orlando, Jake Paul takes on somebody named Andre August, who 
maybe unknown to us, but he is a professional boxer, at least with 12 pro fights, while Franchon Cruz Desern takes on Shadesia Green on an undercard that also features Ashton Silve. And in Glendale, Arizona, on Saturday the 16th, Jesse Bam Rodriguez takes on Britain's Sonny Edwards in a flyweight unification bout, while your guy, Murad John Akhmadaliyev, takes on one Kevin Gonzalez. Both those cards will stream in the U.S. on DAZN. Kieran, do you plan on watching either of them? Thoughts on any of these matchups? I can't imagine I'll watch that Jake Paul card. Um, yes, like you said, he is facing a pro boxer, um, so that's good. But he's picking probably the most anonymous pro boxer in the world. Um, I have really no interest in that contest. Hmm. I have mild interest in in the Cruz Desern fight and in seeing Ashton Silva, but honestly, probably not enough to do anything other than check out highlights. Uh, if we weren't focused on our own Showtime card, I probably would be sitting down to watch uh, Rodriguez Edwards. Not necessarily because of a love for Sonny Edwards, who's not the most exciting of boxes to watch, but because I am a big fan of Bam Rodriguez, as are we all. Uh, he may have his hands full at times pinning down Edwards, but I would imagine that he should ultimately prevail there. Uh, and of course, as you hinted at, we all know how I love myself some MJ Akhmadaliyev, and he'll be making his ring return after letting it slip against Marlon Tapales uh, earlier this year. I'm not expecting Gonzalez to put up an enormous amount of resistance, and I do suspect that Akhmadaliyev will put himself back in place for a title shot against Natoya Inouye, assuming Inouye beats Tapales later this month. Hmm. So in, in contrast to you, if Jake Paul is on DAZN, not pay-per-view, and it's on a Friday night, not competing with other boxing, I actually imagine that I will check it out. And, you know, knowing my narcolepsy, it figures to be a Saturday morning thing, and then there is the possibility that I'll just go the highlight route. But I'm interested enough that uh, given that I don't have to pay extra for it, I, I, I'll probably check that one out. Uh, certainly, Rodriguez Edwards is the most significant of these fights. It's intriguing. It's tough to pick a winner, but I suspect the location will matter here. Edward's boxing style can be, shall we say, an acquired taste. Um, he, he can be a real stinker. Uh, he can be a showboat. Uh, he may or may not actually be getting much offensive business done a lot of the time and will be showboating anyway. He has almost no pop, four KOs, 20 wins. And that's worked out just fine for him fighting at home in the UK. In the UK. But it could be tough to win on points in the American Southwest over Bam Rodriguez, who's from San Antonio, has fought in Phoenix before, fights in Texas, Las Vegas, California, etc. I'm just not sure I see the judges giving Edwards any close rounds if he's fighting in a negative manner. I could possibly favor him in the UK, but I, I think he's the clear underdog to Rodriguez in Phoenix. Uh, we have a couple of fights from this past weekend to talk about. First off, in San Francisco on DAZN pay-per-view, Devin Haney's debut at 140 pounds was an absolutely dominant one as he dropped Regis Progray early and won every round on all three scorecards on his way to 120 to 107 unanimous decision. Kieran, Progray's only previous defeat had been a close decision loss to Josh Taylor, but Haney toyed with him, and afterward he declared himself the fighter of the year. Is he? Or is he at least in the running? He would be, I think, the clear front runner based on results alone, were it not for the fact we all know the story behind his other win this year. Um, right. In isolation, dominating Regis Progre and scoring a split decision win over Vasily Lomachenko would be plenty in today's era of most boxers fighting just once or twice a year to, at the very least, secure strong consideration for fighter of the year. But you and I have discussed plenty of times the fact that neither of us thought Haney actually won that contest. Yeah. If it were just the two of us who thought that, that would be one thing, but it most definitely wasn't. Um, not that it was necessarily a gross robbery, per se. It was a very close fight and a very high-quality fight. But it's just hard to say that someone deserves to be fighter of the year when he fights twice and there's a very strong case to be made that he went one and one, I yeah. think. Um, notwithstanding that, I do think, that that fight and Saturday night's underline just how good Lomachenko remains, given the way in which um, uh, Haney so comfortably handled Prograde. But I have a couple of questions for you. Um, okay. Where does Haney fit now in your pound for pound list? I can only assume that he's, if he was on the fringes, he must be ready to make a, a an entry on there. But despite the fact, additionally, that he's only just arrived at 140 pounds, Haney and his father were talking post-fight about the possibility, at least, of a fight at 147. We know who would be waiting for him there. It's the idea of Terence Crawford versus Haney. I think not a fight that we've necessarily talked about a lot 
something that intrigues or excites you? Or would you prefer to see him now he's at 140 stick around there for a while? So I have revised and updated my pound for pound list. And um, before this fight, though, many people had Haney in their top 10. I did not. I, I could not put him in, but keep Lomachenko out because that was Haney's most recent fight. And I firmly believe he lost it. But a narrow loss to Loma doesn't mean you aren't a pound for pound talent. And now that it's not his most recent fight, and now that his most recent fight is an absolute whitewashing of an opponent I had a high opinion of, I mean, this is this is by far Haney's masterpiece to this point in his career. I think he he has to be top 10 pound for pound right now, even if Lomachenko is not. So I moved him up to number seven. Uh, but honestly, my, my second five, my six through 10, I could see them going in pretty much any order. Um, I have it. Shakur Stevenson, even off a lousy showing, then Haney, then David Benavidez, then Tank Davis, and then Arthur Beterbiev, who's slid down a bit through inactivity. But I could see Haney anywhere from six to 10 right now. Um, as for his future and the 140 or 147 question, look, he knows his body. He knows if 147 is where he belongs, but he looked pretty damn great at 140 on Saturday night. I, I'd like to see him tangle with the best guys in this division for at least another fight or two, though I understand he may see more dollar signs at welterweight. But come on, Haney versus Teofimo Lopez for the lineal 140-pound title. That's a fantastic fight. That's a meeting of two of the original four princes, trademark here in mm-hmm. Mulvaney. Uh, <laughs> and uh, also Haney, Subriel, Matias. That'd be a pretty good meeting of styles there. Um, but, you know... If he can get a huge pay-per-view payday against Terrence Crawford, I understand taking a shot at that, even though I have a very, very hard time seeing Haney prevailing in that fight. But, you know, beyond that, there isn't actually that much else at 147 that represents a mega payday. Um, And if he jumps up and does take on Bud, uh, you know, one more excuse for nobody to fight Boots Ennis. Um, So... I'd like to see Haney spend 2024 at Junior Welter, ideally square off with Teofimo before the year is out, and then give 147 a shot. And and actually, that kind of timeline could be to his benefit. With Bud turning 37 next fall, you know, wait him out a little. Then make uh-huh. your move if you're 25-year-old Devin Haney. Still blazing away as he's just 25. It is remarkable yeah. he's, that he is as good a boxer as he is at such a young age. Yeah. Um. Meanwhile... In Florida on ESPN, in the main event of a top-ranked card, Rafael Espinosa recovered from a big knockdown at the end of the fifth round to drop Rabisi Ramirez in the dying seconds of their featherweight title fight and eke out a majority decision win by scores of 113-113, 114-112, and 115-111. It was a fight full of momentum changes. Espinosa seemingly dominant through four and three-quarter rounds, the initiative shifting back to Ramirez quite solidly after that knockdown. And then Espinosa finding the extra gear at the last. Um, you asked me whether Devin Haney is fighter of the year. So let me ask you this. Is Espinosa Ramirez the fight of the year? And what does this mean for Ramirez? He's a two-time Olympic champ who lost his pro debut and is now 13-2 and as Espinosa climbs to 24-0. This fight restored a lot of my boxing fandom, Kieran. Uh, honestly, oh, it, yeah. it was that good. It was that powerful. Yeah. And... Um, you know, I've been covering this sport since 1997. I love it, but it's a job. Uh, I get jaded. And this fight comes along and reminds me why I fell in love with boxing in the first place. Incredible action, incredible heart on display, insane drama to the very end, including waiting to hear the scorecards, and a story beyond anything you could script. Um, yes, it is the fight of the year. Now, before I make that official in a couple of weeks, I will look back over the other contenders and confirm that my heat of the moment feeling right now is correct. But I do feel at this moment, this is the fight of the year and it's the upset of the year. I mean, Rabesi Ramirez was like minus 1200. This was yeah. assumed to be easy work. Espinoza did not have a single remotely meaningful win on his record. No fringe contenders, no fringe of the fringe contenders and and here he was handpicked for a shot at an olympic gold medalist and rising star in an espn main event he was never getting another opportunity like this he had to make good on this one and did he ever long and lean but busy and willing to fight inside and and took it to ramirez from the start and ramirez damn it i did it again his whole career i've been saying nah i don't see it you guys are overhyping him (laughs) and i finally start to concede coming into this one Uh, i guess he's the goods uh and then this happens but 
he gets off to this terrible start, loses the first four rounds, then scores a huge knockdown in the fifth. And I really thought Espinosa was done. If not that round, then certainly in the next couple, Ramirez kept landing bombs. Espinosa kept going on jelly legs, but kept staying up and fighting back. And I think Ramirez gassed out a bit, pulling ahead on the scorecards, trying for the finish. And so it was Espinosa who had more in the tank the final few rounds. But truly, either man's fight heading into the 12th, and Espinosa scores that dramatic knockdown. Again, you can't script this stuff. Um, but then we wait for the judges to screw it up. We wait. Not we wait. Right. <laughs> we wait some more. It's taking forever. The commission is double-checking the tallies. As I tweeted, only bad things happen when Florida takes an excessive amount of time to tally the votes. <laughs> History says they declare the wrong man the winner, and we all suffer as a result. Uh, finally, the scores. 113-113. So clearly we're headed for a majority decision, which is fine. But did they give it to the right guy? Did they give it to Espinoza, or are they going to bail out the house fighter and leave a bad taste in the mouth of every casual fan who kept ESPN turned on after the Heisman ceremony? Next score, 114-112, and then 115-11 from Steve Weisfeld. I breathed a sigh of relief hearing his name. <laughs> Weisfeld was not going to score at 115-111 for Ramirez, and indeed he did not. But what a fight. What a drama. What a story Espinoza is. And Ramirez... Yeah, this is now two gigantic upset losses in his first 15 fights, like unthinkable upsets going in. Mm. But, you know, the script from here writes itself. Got to do a rematch. It has yeah. to happen. Run it back ASAP. I thought this fight showed, it sort of encapsulated the enormous amounts of strength that boxers have to have emotionally, psychologically, physically, for Espinoza, after 11 and a half rounds of just remarkable action in which he'd been throwing an incredible number of punches, just try to throw as many punches as he threw without <laughs> getting hit back. Right. And then suddenly, as if he just hit the turbo button and came up with that sudden blast of, of, of punches that just sapped the last of the life out of, uh, out of Ramirez at the end there. Um, uh, I, I, that was remarkable. And, yeah. and even, you know, credit to Ramirez, who was getting fairly shellacked in those first few rounds, just didn't seem able to get past uh, Espinosa's height and reach and punch output at all to score that remarkable knockdown. And full credit to the referee, because after Espinosa got up and then stumbled face first into the ropes, right. a lot of refs would have stopped it right there. Mm -hmm. and, and with some reason, and perhaps had it been 30 seconds earlier in the round, we might have had a very different situation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for, for him to then, and then seemingly just be getting cracked, we saw him do a little dance. I think it was in the next round. Um, just remarkable reserves of strength on, on the part of both men. This was, yeah, this was absolutely, If this was, you know, we talk sometimes, don't we, about picking a fight that you would want to show somebody to make them a fight fan. Right. I think this is one of those, eh? I, I yeah. definitely think this is one of those. Absolutely. All right. Let us now switch gears and turn to the fight game. Mm -hmm. uh, not too many left for us to have to stress through now. Um, I will say <laughs> in advance. Do you really stress through these? Uh, sometimes. Sometimes. Mm -hmm. All right. I enjoy it. As we know, I'm a big fan of game shows and trivia and all that stuff. So for me, for me, the fight game is fun. The top five list can sometimes be stressful, but the fight game's fun. <laughs> <laughs> see the stress we put ourselves through for your entertainment so there you go <laughs> the sacrifices we make that's that's right uh, i mentioned this to you beforehand i'm a little concerned we might have done this already uh, mm. as you said to me we need an intern it's probably <laughs> the wrong timing for us to be looking to try to get an intern right now but yeah. should have thought about this three years ago but here we go um we need we need an intern to come up with a list of all our fight games and everything else that we've done but yeah what the hell here we go eh? um uh, you'll okay. definitely get this with the fourth clue if not before oh here uh, he goes with the pressure here it comes <laughs> there we go all right and you might get it before if it's one of those where you just like get into the right um time period and everything but anyway I wonder um, if no. I wonder if knowing that you are concerned that we may have done it before is going to throw me off as I'll start thinking of fights we've already done. But I'm, oh, I'm going to try and clear my head. Clear my head. Go. Okay. Open mind. Here we go. Okay. Um. Peace <laughs> in. Negativity in. Positivity out. <laughs> All right. Number one. 
Two undefeated records were on the line as a lineal champ stepped up in weight to take on another lineal champ in this battle of future Hall of Famers. Okay, so both lineal champs, both Hall of Famers, both undefeated. Correct. Okay. Trying to think what could come to mind. Um, like we just, well, not that, uh, not that Jermel Char, Jermel Charla was not undefeated, and we don't know if they're Hall of Famers yet. But uh, you know, Canelo and Jermel would have been an example of the two lineal champs, one jumping up in weight, all that. Um, so it's certainly it's got to be old enough that both guys are in the Hall of Fame. Both undefeated, both the champions of their division. So I'm thinking like middleweight and super middleweight was James Tony undefeated when Roy Jones moved up then were they were they even lineal champs I don't know Tony or Jones was certainly undefeated they're both hall of famers I could keep hemming and hawing and thinking through history and I kind of don't think that this one fits because I don't know that either was a lineal champ, but I'll just say it so that we can get to clue two. And uh, and this fits as a fight that we may have done before, but I can't remember. Yeah, uh, so uh, is it Roy Jones, James Tony? That's an excellent, excellent guess. It's wrong. Right. But it's I figured I figured it was. Yeah, I I, I don't think I that don't know they, if they were lineal either. I'm not sure that yeah, they were. I don't Tony I don't think been, so. But I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um. But but an excellent guess. Okay. <clears throat> Number two, for the winner, several big fights remained. The loser, however, would have just one more crack at the big time before retiring with a record of forty-five and three. Loser would have just one more crack at the big time. So that, I now I may be zeroing in, because that record sounds really familiar. Um, it can sometimes be a bit of a the giveaway, <laughs> actually, if you've just so, looked at that fighter's record, yeah. So yeah. just one more crack at the big time, but obviously more than just one more fight. If he ended Correct. up with three losses uh, and he was undefeated coming into this, but now I'm starting to think... So it's it's some, I feel like here's where my mind is. It's some combination mm -hmm. of fighters that it's it's the I've got the Wilfredo Gomez, Salvador Sanchez, Carlos Zarate, Pedro Zamora, like those guys in that era going through my head. And that 45 and three, I was kind of thinking sounded like Gomez. So and I, I do believe he was a lineal champ moving up in weight. So I will say Salvador Sanchez over Wilfredo Gomez. You can go ahead and say that. <laughs> yes, that's what I'm saying. Is it correct? There you go. No, no. Oh, but um <laughs> I really thought I had it there. <laughs> Damn it. Ah, all right. And for the record, I don't, I don't think we've done that one. Although we may no, have. No, I'm pretty sure we haven't, actually. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we haven't. Um, okay. Oh, you, and you know what? Now I'm realizing that wouldn't have fit anyway, because uh, you said for the winner, several big fights remained, mm -hmm. and Salvador Sanchez did not have a whole lot of big fights left after that, Alas. sadly. So hey. that part wouldn't have fit. I got overconfident. All right, next clue. Um, I'm not sure how helpful the third clue is, but what the hell. Um, the winner's record is littered with genuinely big names. The loser's less so. But his biggest career win is on a par with the very best. Hmm. So the winner fought a lot of big names. <laughs> the loser did not, but his biggest win was a huge one. Yes. Can you tell me whether my previous guess, whether I was anywhere close, because I want to decide whether or not to sort of clear my mind of those like late 70s, early 80s featherweight-ish fighters. Right. So apart from the fact that you had the wrong nationalities, the wrong era, and the wrong weights, you were very close. <laughs> okay, good, good. I, I, I can reposition my mind. Time-wise with the first guess. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you for that additional hints okay so now we're talking more like anywhere from the late 80s to the 90s to the early 2000s could fit this um hmm. so it's but it, it wouldn't be 
any of the Morales Barrera stuff, as Barrera was not undefeated when those happened. I'll give you another clue. Not necessarily early, early 2000s. Hmm. Okay. Might be a few, might be a few years into the 2000s. Okay, but the, but they've both. It was long enough ago that they've both retired and gotten into the Hall of Fame since. Correct. Yes. Um. And the fact that the loser made it into the Hall of Fame with basically one huge win. Not, uh, okay, now I'm now I think I've got it. Okay. That last clue I think gave it away, and I think this is going to segue into our next segment. Yes, <laughs> it must be Ricky Hatton suffering his first defeat at the hands of Floyd Mayweather. You are correct. Yes, indeed. <laughs> you That's gave me just enough is. bonus clues to get me there. <laughs> I probably would not have come up with that without without a little nudging uh, prior to the fourth clue. Yeah, I was starting to feel that actually the, cl- the clues that I had just weren't quite giving enough. And so that's why I thought it was actually fair to put in a couple of... Um, I appreciate uh, that, yeah. So yeah I especially gotta... if you just can't, can't put your nail down the time period. That's when, that's when it becomes really, really tricky. Yeah. Um, so I thought, yeah, no, I should help you out a wee bit there. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. So yeah, I got it on, on three and a half. And I can say with 99.9% certainty, we have not done that one before in the fight. Game. Okay, good. Well, I know just know we've talked about it in some context. And obviously, we talked specifically with that third clue about Ricky and whether that one big win, you know, just how much that justified him being in the Hall of Fame and so on and so forth. So right. I know we had that conversation. Right. Um, but yeah, there you go. Uh, clues four and five. Four is actually kind of a almost I think perhaps I was feeling that the first three weren't very good. So four is almost like a clue five. <laughs> okay. Um, cheered on by his masses and masses of fans, the loser must have thought he was in a wonderland early, mm. but he ultimately found his chin checked with a left hook that relieved him of his equilibrium and brought about a stoppage. Yeah, that you are correct that there is a there is no chance I wouldn't have gotten it off that yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. And then number five, there was only one of the loser. The winner may have been a junior, but he was an all-time great, even if he wasn't really the best ever. <laughs> oh, boy, you're going to piss off some people by saying he wasn't the best ever, Kieran. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, you know, even if he wasn't, you know, maybe, you know. He was still an all-time great, even if he wasn't. He was an all-time great, even if he was. There's a little bit of ambiguity in there. <laughs> yes. Um, all right. That was that was a, that was a good one. Uh, I definitely have not done it before, and um, I'm just going to round down and call call it a, a win in three clues. Uh, I'm grounding down yeah, yeah. from three and a half. We're we're calling it three. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. I think okay. that's fair enough. All right, and as you pointed out, this does segue into our next segment uh, because this past week saw the announcement of the 2024 class of the International Boxing Hall of Fame. And Eric, your predictions for who would be elected in the modern men's category were pretty darn close. The aforementioned Ricky Hatton, Ivan Calderon, Diego Chico Corrales, and Michael Mora were all elected in that category, while Jane Couch and Ana Maria Torres were elected in the modern women's category. Elected in the non-participants category were trainer Kenny Adams, manager and former podcast guest Jackie Callan, and our good friend Fred Sternberg. In the observer category, Wallace Matthews and the late Nick Charles, the original face and voice of Showbox, were elected. Luis Angel Firpo was elected in the old-timers category, and the women's trailblazer category saw the addition of Teresa Kibbe. Eric, any thoughts on this year's class, and did anybody surprise you? My predictions were not just close, Kieran. I nailed it about as well as anyone could nail it, short of predicting that there would be a tie for the third spot and four (laughs) modern men's fighters would get in. I said I thought it would be Iron Boy's year. I said I thought it would be Hatton's year. And after some pondering, I leaned Chico Corrales for the third spot. Now, granted, if I had predicted a fourth, it wouldn't have been Michael Moore. Mm. Um, but in a year like this, where there are no clear-cut slam-dunk Hall of Famers on the ballot, these inductees make sense. They're all reasonably deserving, even more given the reality that it's just easier to get into the Hall of Fame if you're a former heavyweight champion. Yeah, Moore does have a win over Evander Holyfield. He was the lineal champ made history as the first Southpaw heavyweight champ, a part of history in the it happened, it happened fight. Um, (laughs) And um, he was also an outstanding light heavyweight back when he was skinnier and hungrier. Um, I didn't vote for him, but I didn't vote for any of these guys. None of my five got in, um, but but I still have no issue with any of it, really. And uh, Hatton especially was very close to making the cut for me this year. 
I did a better job with the non-participants. We get to vote for up to five, and all three of go those going in were among my five. I voted for Kenny Adams, I voted for Jackie Callan, and I voted for the one and only Fred Sternberg, publicist to the stars. Uh, very happy for all three of them. I've ranted about the modern women's category plenty. This isn't the time. Congrats to Couch and Torres. I'm happy for Wally Matthews as well. And Nick Charles getting in means maybe some of our Showtime friends will be that much more likely to attend in June. And boy, everybody from Showbox is getting in, huh? Barry, Steve, now Nick. Gordon Hall yeah. ought to be up next. It's about time yes, to get should. Gordon on the ballot. Um, but... Yeah, solid class, and uh, I wish I could have bet on my picks. I would have cleaned up, uh, but <laughs> but seriously, uh, everyone, next year, get your heads out of your asses. Vote for Punk to collect one drunk. Yeah. There you go. Um, yeah, I wasn't surprised about Hatton or Calderon, both of whom I did vote, vote for. I was mildly surprised about Corrales Amora because Diego took such a long time to even get onto the ballot, so I, right. I wasn't sure there would be enough support for him. Um, you know, you could argue whether his entire resume is really Hall of Fame worthy, but you know, you talked about being a part of history. When you win what might be the greatest fight of all time, it's right. hard to complain about you getting into the Hall of Fame. And I also knew Diego a little and I liked him. I'm just mm -hmm. sorry he, he can't be around for his own induction, honestly. Um, yeah. and, I, and I was a little surprised by Mora too, but had the same kind of thoughts as you. He was a good light heavyweight, a uh, very good light heavyweight, in fact. And he was lineal heavyweight champion. And that does, you know, you, like as you said, you're going to at least merit consideration on that basis alone. For the women, I'm not at all familiar with Ana Maria Torres, but Jane Couch, I will give her credit. She was a forerunner in British women's boxing. She was the mm. first licensed women's boxer in Britain, I believe. Um, and, and she did compete uh, at world-class uh, world level. Um, uh, and she faced, like, really tough opposition as well. Uh, in the observer category, yeah, look, how appropriate as Showtime Boxing comes to a close that Nick Charles, a man who is such an important part of it, should be appropriately honoured. There are going to be a lot of tissues at his induction. Mm. Um, and congratulations to Wally Matthews. Great guy. Great, great writer. Kind of old school boxing journalist who actually understands and practices journalism. Um, a breed in this sport that is not so much dying, but on the verge of being studied by archaeologists. Um, <laughs> I will also say that in this category, I am going to continue voting for John Shepard and Bob Canobio and going on about it until they get in. Um, Jackie Callum is a shoe in a rightly so. Uh, she's a definition of a Hall of Famer, Kenny Adams, too. And what can we say about our good friend, Fred? Um, he was bound to get in as soon as he appeared on the ballot because he's absolutely beloved in this sport. And with all due deference to our other publicist friends, he's as good as anyone who's ever done the job in this sport, I think. Yeah. All right. To conclude, it is time for our final top five challenge. So no more stress after this, Eric. Um, <laughs> over the last few weeks. We have been focusing our top five challenges on Showtime Boxing retrospectives. And so we're going to wrap this segment up with a straightforward but challenging one. Over its 37 years, beginning with Marvin Hagler, as we said, and ending with David Morrell, as we said, Showtime has aired bouts featuring some of the very best boxes of their eras. Your mission, Eric, should you choose to accept it. Name the top five boxers ever to fight on Showtime. Okay. All right. Uh, perfect assignment to end on. Um, you know, we, we, we did best Showtime fights, now best Showtime fighters. I mean, that's what it's all about. That's the legacy of Showtime boxing, the fights and the fighters. So, uh, okay, excellent assignment. Um, just my immediate reaction, I guess you're... You're kind of asking me to rank the greatest fighters, period, of the last 37 years. <laughs> yeah, um, basically, yeah. I, I guess there are a handful of exceptions. I, I don't think Roy Jones ever fought on Showtime. No. I can't recall off the top of my head if Ray Leonard did. So Oscar I'll have to did, examine. Done, I guess. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to examine that, uh, you know, figure out exactly who didn't didn't fight on Showtime. But this list figures to look fairly similar to, to a ranking of the yeah. greatest fighters, 1986 to present. Uh, but yeah, this will be fun. This will this will be interesting. Um, I'll give I'll give away a, a spoiler right now. Uh, Scott England will not be on my list, but only because he didn't fight on Showtime. That's right, exactly. And he doesn't by qualify. the way, by the way, full credit to Scott England for doing that. Um, no credit really to the commission for for saying <laughs> that that was an okay fight to have. But you know, good full freaking credit to him at any age, let alone fifty eight. Yeah, so we've already I mean, established I... that's, that's like more than we're gonna do. 
and and as I said at the beginning, if you're going to have a midlife crisis, as bad an idea as it struck me at first, the more I thought through the midlife crisis options, that's not such a bad one. So good for him. I still think getting two cats is better, but there you go. All right. (laughs) You can do both. (laughs) You could. But, you know, I'm a I'm a one thing at a time, one crisis at a time kind of guy. <laughs> you can't, you can't multi-crisis. <laughs> I cannot. I cannot. Okay. All right, that will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week with a recap of David Morrell versus Senator Agbeko and the rest of the final Showtime Championship Boxing card. Until then, thank you for listening. Be safe, be kind, 